the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. I'm so glad to see all of you here today. I wonder if you're the kind of person who likes to make things, likes to know how they work, likes to kind of get inside of something and see how it's made. A couple of years ago, our Keurig machine, you know, the instant coffee was... um, it was going on the fritz, and it was making a weird noise. It wasn't transferring the water correctly. And I thought, you know, I'm a man. <laughs> so screw by screw and piece by piece, I, I took it apart to get in there and see what was wrong with it. And I got to tell you, in the end, it was just so satisfying <laughs> to scrape all those parts into the trash can and just go buy a new Keurig. It was... I envy the guys and the gals that can can get in and just, you know, take things apart, figure it out, fix them, put them back together. I may not know too much about what it what it takes to make a Keurig or lots of other things, but I do know that our passage from the second chapter of Acts has a lot to say about what makes the church. What makes the church. Now, uh, you might be surprised that I wouldn't talk about the road to Emmaus, a wonderful passage, much, much to commend in that passage uh, that Father George just read. But I, I want to um, take this opportunity to talk about uh, this to you with uh, the summer and my sabbatical right around the corner. Uh, this week we're going to talk about the making of the church, and next week we're actually going to look at the, the verses that follow this passage, and we'll talk about the life of the church. I think it's sometimes easy to slip uh, into the idea that we come to church for what we get out of it rather than for the part that we play in it. Now, I hope you get something out of it, but, uh, but whether the rector is here or not, you have an important role to play in the life of this church. My Keurig was really nothing more than the sum of its parts and the functioning of those parts working together correctly. And so this week, and we're talking about the making of the church, we're going to look at some of the foundational elements of this passage. And then uh, and, uh, the foundational elements of the church as they're presented in this passage. And then next week, we're going to look at how those parts function together. Okay? So... Uh, today's passage begins, it's really the very tail end of Peter's sermon on Pentecost. If you remember, that's uh, the day of Pentecost, about 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, and just 10 days after the ascension of Jesus up into heaven. The disciples had been in Galilee, but they're back now in Jerusalem, and there are pilgrims there in Jerusalem who are there from all over the known world. And they're in town for the harvest festival called Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And the disciples are praying, and they're up in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, uh, and uh, it made such a loud noise, it's like a mighty rushing wind, it made such a loud noise that thousands of people uh, poured out into the streets to see what all the commotion was. And these people from all over the world heard the disciples 
talking about God, but they heard them each in their own native language. And Peter, so it's just it's a miracle, a miracle of, of Pentecost. And Peter, this is the same common fisherman Peter who just a few weeks before had denied that he even knew Jesus. He stands up publicly in Jerusalem in front of thousands of people and delivers this tremendous sermon using passages from the Old Testament to explain to them what they're experiencing. And this leads us to the first piece of what makes the church. And that first piece is proclamation. The proclamation of the work of Jesus is proclaimed in some way. The Word of God is read uh, or spoken and explained in any number of ways. And, you know, it could be a sermon like this one. It could be a conversation with a friend by uh, the pool. It could be a Bible study. It could be a grandmother uh, reading a Bible story to her grandchildren. Um, and whether the setting is formal or informal, there's always some way before faith, there's always some way that, uh, that the gospel is proclaimed. You know, you can come out here in the evening and look at a, just a beautiful sunset. And when you look across that river and see the sun setting, you might get this real sense that there is a creator. But you cannot look at that sunset and know that God the Father sent God the Son to die for our sins and then rise again to offer us eternal life because He loves us. That has to be spoken. That has to be proclaimed. Preacher to congregation. Friend to friend. Parent to child. Sometimes child to parent. St. Paul wrote that Uh, to the Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the Word of God. And I wonder who who it was for you. Who was it for you? Was it one person? Was it lots of people over time? Did you hear it in one sudden burst of understanding finally or did it take a long time? Or are you still working on it and trying to figure it out? Maybe you saw a difference in a friend's life and it was intriguing to you. And so you brought it up over coffee. Maybe you got invited to a church event and you heard there would be free food. So Maybe you were just lonely or lost inside or curious or at a crossroads and so you just showed up. Maybe your parents made you go to church. However it was that you got there, there was a moment, or maybe lots of moments, of proclamation. Right? And that's what Peter was doing when the Holy Spirit showed up and the people came out to see what was, uh, what was going on. And they came out and uh, on that Pentecost morning and Peter proclaimed. He told them about Jesus, that he was crucified. I've actually been... Uh, wondering if some of them who were there listening to Peter were in the courtyard with Pilate yelling, crucify him. Just a few weeks earlier, Peter proclaimed that he was crucified, that God raised him up, and that he was both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is proclaiming to the the apostles or the disciples on the road to Emmaus, opening the scriptures to them and telling them about himself. 
On Pentecost with Peter, it says that when the audience heard it, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They were moved. They were suddenly, they felt this deep distance between them and God. They felt some culpability that their sin, in fact, had in some sense contributed to the death of God's Son. And so they cry out. They, they cry out to the disciples, Brothers, what are we to do? And Peter responds, Repent and be baptized. That's the second element. We'll kind of smush those two together, repentance and baptism, and just say repentance is really the second element. There is, in the heart and mind of every Christian believer, there is a turning away from sin, which is to say a turning away of just saying I want to be God unto myself and a turning towards Christ and His work, away from sin towards Christ. And the Holy Spirit uses that proclamation of God's Word and it lands, and it's different, it lands differently in different ways for, for each of us, but it lands in the heart and the mind. And we turn from our old life of independence from God and, and we turn towards our Savior. We turn towards Jesus Christ. And for some, this may, you know, at the first time, when this first happens, it may feel dramatic, this massive turn, or it may, it may be more subtle. But as the relationship grows, it probably begins to kind of feel normal, like this pattern uh, that works itself into the daily life of a Christian, that we are constantly turning away from the desires of the flesh that pull us away from God and towards the love of God uh, in Christ. I think that we sometimes understand repentance like in a negative light. You know, change your behavior or else. And I actually think that's the wrong way to understand repentance. Repentance is actually an invitation to true freedom. Repentance comes with the realization that what we often call freedom is actually an enslavement to our own appetites. Right? Just like I couldn't help myself. And that's what was happening, I think, to Peter's audience when when they were cut to the heart. They realized that what they thought was freedom, that was actually taking them away from the true freedom of a life lived with God in Christ. Think about like a fish, that a fish wouldn't be free if it said, you know, I'm done with water. It's not going to constrain me anymore. I'm out of here. It wouldn't take long. A fish is only free when it is actually constrained by the water. That's where it can breathe. That's where it can be who it was created to be. Repentance is an invitation back into the water of God's love that we were created for. Or if you like, it's, uh, repentance is to undig our heels against God and His Son and begin digging in our heels against the things that take us away from the true freedom in Him. Repentance is the relinquishing of our quests to save ourselves and trusting instead in the saving work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Is there a change of behavior? Probably eventually, yeah. But it's because of what God does on the inside as we experience his true freedom. So there's proclamation, there's the telling of good news, there's repentance, turning away from sin and turning towards Christ. And what do you get when you turn to Christ? 
Well, that's the third piece that Peter tells us about. You get to receive the promises. You get to receive the promises. That's the third piece that makes the church. Like when on your birthday, you know, your friends come around and they give you, they throw you this giant party and they give you uh, all these lavish gifts and you receive them. You don't ask your friends, you don't say, uh, I actually already have one of those, so if you could just take that back, that'd be great. You don't do that. You don't just leave it on the table so you can look at it occasionally, right? You use them, you take them, and you wear them, or you eat them, or drink them, or whatever it is that your uh, friends have brought you. And when you turn to Jesus Christ, it's better than your birthday. And Peter tells us, uh, tells his Pentecost crowd that they get two things when they receive Christ, or two things they receive in turning to Christ, two things that we also receive. Uh, first, the forgiveness of our sins. The sacrifice of Jesus is made to be ours when we turn to Christ. Everything that ever kept us away from God, all the, all the right things that we did for the wrong reasons, or all the wrong things we did for the right reasons, and all the me-first thoughts and words and deeds, it's all Wiped clean. (laughs) Ten burpees. It's all wiped clean. The forgiveness of our sins. It's not just swept under the rug. It's paid for. It's died for. Not because we've earned it, but because He is good. Because He is merciful. Nothing, nothing, nothing stands between you and Almighty God. Think about how amazing that must have been to Peter's audience. This Jesus, whom you crucified, He is your refuge. He is the very one offering you forgiveness. He is the very one that is forgiving you for that sin and every other sin, clearing the path between you and God. We receive the forgiveness of our sins. Now that's like wiping the past clean, but what about our future? We also receive the Holy Spirit. And that's really the miracle of Pentecost, isn't it? That by faith that all of us have the presence of God with us always. Now there is a lot to say about that. If I go down that rabbit hole, we'll miss lunch, but save that for another time. What I want to point out is that we've been talking about the making of the church. We said that there's proclamation, there's repentance, uh, there's receiving of the promises, and each one of those really is, in a, in a sense, individual. Like, I hear the word, I respond to the word by repenting. I receive the forgiveness and the Holy Spirit that is offered to me. The church is the community of those together who have heard the word, who have repented, who have received the promises. It's the gathering of individuals who come together because of what we share in Christ. I may have told this story before, but when I was uh, a new priest, I was on John's Island in South Carolina, right outside of Charleston. And uh, one Christmas, we went down to this local Christmas tree lot, and, and um, I got to talking with one of the Christmas tree guys, you know, and, and uh, eventually he goes, well, you know, what, what do you do? And I said, I'm kind of reluctant, you know, because whenever I tell people what I do, it like shuts down the conversation. You're like, <laughs> oh, I'm a minister. 
You know, it's kind of it's kind of what it happens. But um, he didn't. He didn't. He just he like engaged. He was like, oh, really? That's fantastic. I, you know, I just I love God. I love Jesus. I love the the Bible. And and um, I said, man, that's fantastic. Where do you go to church? He said, oh, I don't go to church. This is my church. And I mean, John's Island is a beautiful place. Um, and and I I said, really? He said, oh yeah. I mean, I just I just out here. I praise the Lord. I don't need a, I don't need. I mean, I don't need a church. You know, I just and. Um, and he went on to tell me, he said, man, but my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Acts. And, um, and I, I said, uh, really, tell me about it. He said, yeah, I've got pretty much the whole book of Acts memorized. Well, that's pretty impressive. I don't have the book of Acts memorized. And um, I said, well, you know, if you ever change your mind, we'd love to have you at our, our church. And I was driving away with my, you know, uh, um, Christmas tree on top of the car. And I realized, like, the whole book of Acts talks about people coming to faith and coming into the church. Like, there's, not a single, there's not a single instance in the New Testament of a Christian growing in Christ apart from the church, apart from the community of believers. Now, maybe they hear the word and they're cut to the heart, you know, sort of off Maybe like the Philippian jailer, he was, you know, in, in, on the job. But, but he, what happens immediately? They come into the fellowship of believers, always brought into the fellowship of believers. Because we need each other. You can't just like hear it, repent, and turn to the Lord on your own. Because then, I mean, Jesus starts to look a lot like you do. I mean, personal devotions are good. I would even say they are essential. But the New Testament would suggest that they are not sufficient. Now, I'm sort of preaching to the choir. I mean, you're here in church, right? But, but, but God, in His mercy, in His wisdom, has given us each other, has given us the community of faith to sharpen our proclamation, to hone our repentance, to facilitate our receiving of the promises. If I had left all the parts of my old Keurig scattered out on the coffee, I would uh, ca- scattered out on the counter. I wouldn't have had any coffee. And similarly, if if our parts of the church don't come together in community, then we ultimately have no real faith. Peter preached that Pentecost morning. That was proclamation. And three. Thousand individuals responded in repentance and receiving of the promises, forgiveness and Holy Spirit. But those 3,000 weren't then just patted on the head and sent out to be by themselves, right? They were each invited collectively into the disciples' community of faith. The church, broken as she is sometimes, is part of God's gift to us. We are, you are, the body of Christ. We need each other. Each of us has a role to play. Not as consumers, that is what we get out of it, but as contributors. We're going to talk about that next week more in depth. But remember, there is proclamation. The telling of the good news. And there's our response that's turning from our life apart from Christ, turning to Christ. And there is the recipient, receiving of uh, reception of forgiveness and the knowledge that God is with us always through the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Amen.